I am going to begin this interview with Jennifer Yu with a title because I just love saying it. Monstrous Wives, Murderous Lovers, and Dead Wet Girls. This is an examination of feminine, vengeful ghosts in Japanese traditional theater and horror cinema. So welcome, Jennifer. Jennifer is a PhD candidate in Asian theater program uh, in the Department of Theater and Dance here at UH Manoa. She received her BA in East Asian Studies from Wellesley, and her primary academic interest is women's representation in media and culture, which she explores in her dissertation of the same title that I just had mentioned. So, and she's also awarded the Crown Prince Akihito Scholarship to conduct her doctoral field research in Kyoto, Japan. So very interesting, very transnational, multicultural perspective on women and representation. So um, welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. So I understand you are in the East Coast, Massachusetts right now, where you're residing, but you had been at UH, you know, when you started your program. And uh, let's talk about you first before we talk about your work. What brought you to talk uh, to to delve into representation of women? And, you know, you obviously have a thing for um, the the more the darker side of women's representation. So. Uh, yeah, give us a little scope of what you are. Sure, sure. I guess uh, a lot of it kind of started from being at, at Wellesley. Wellesley College, for those who are not familiar, is an all-women's school. And so I was surrounded by people who also shared similar uh, interests and values and such. And, and so a lot of my professors kind of inspired people to really think about representation. I took a lot of media classes back then. Uh, my interest in, in Japanese media kind of started from more film uh, and literature. Theater kind of actually came a little later, uh, but that I guess is where I got first interested because Japan, I mean, a lot of uh, countries have different really fascinating theater forms, but Japan uh, has a number of theater forms that really play with gender representation, the traditional kabuki theater, for example, literally has a female impersonator role that's reserved for uh, just that particular actor to perform, known as the onagata. And so the idea of performing femininity was something that I found particularly fascinating. And on the flip side, there's another theater form in Japan known as the Takarazuka Review, where it's the opposite, where it's all women perform and they have a specific male impersonating role known as the otokoyaku. So I guess I just kind of got fascinated by the idea of playing with gender and what that does. Um, and then kind of comparing it to film where people are playing the, the genders that they are more or less assigned. Mm. That's a lot there um, and fascinating, but let's back up a little even more. So when you were growing up, did, or did you grow up as a multicultural kid? What were the influences of Japanese culture, theater and, and, and film in your life that uh, affected the way you saw things or your parents maybe? Uh, okay, yeah. So um, my family is actually Korean. Okay. So I got interested in Japanese media actually just through consumption of it. Uh, mm -hmm. I grew up loving things like anime and, and, and manga and stuff like that. You a gamer? Uh, um, not so much a gamer, more more a reader uh, of okay. comics and, and such. But uh, yeah, so um, that's where I first got my start. Uh, 
I did get into a, a little bit of awkwardness because my grandparents were kind of hoping that I would learn like Korean, but I learned Japanese first. Yeah. <laughs> They're fine with it. Well, they were fine with it eventually, but they were a little disappointed, I guess, with their grandchild, um, not maybe pursuing more of their their cultural heritage more right but, and then um, there's their dynamics and relationship and tensions between the Japanese and cultural and Korean history sure sure yeah in the case of my grandparents they actually survived during the Japanese occupation so it felt uh, a little awkward for yeah. them uh which I was trying to I, I was always very understanding of um so they would ask me not to not to speak Japanese I don't I didn't really speak Japanese in front of family anyway, because I was the only one who knew the language. Um, but those kinds of slight tensions did kind of pop up. So I guess in in a way it was multicultural because I sort of brought in another uh, culture to our, our family because our family is pretty much all Korean. Okay, wow. So, you know, that brings an interesting point because, you know, a lot of times, especially here in the States, you know, we talk about racism and misunderstandings and all these kind of interracial tensions, but we don't often see it within the same kind of color, if you will, you know, like within Asian culture, there are so many different, and we all put everything under, you know, everything in the States is this is big lump of this Asian American idea of identity, which is really pathetic. Um, so, you know, to break down the nuances between and differences of culture and, and why they matter, I think are really important conversations. And that's why I, I really wanted to focus a little bit on your context uh, because you know where you come from on this is, is, is really important. And maybe you wanna share a little bit of your process in learning Japanese culture from you know, stemming from your interest and fascination with the art. You know, what is it that draws you into a culture? Is it the, like you said, you're watching films and you're, you know, you liked anime. Like, what is it about media that draws us into it? Hmm. So I guess what first attracted me to, to Japanese in my experience, in my personal experience was actually history. Uh, I was watching a lot of uh, films and, and anime that were about samurai. Mm. And I discovered through that process that a lot of them were actually based on real people. Uh, there was a particular anime manga called Ruroni Kenshin. Uh, and so that one has a lot of historical figures that actually were real. And this was back when I was like 12. So uh, very different from now. Um, so I became really curious about how much of it was real. And I kind of pursued it from there and then sort of left a bit of anime manga behind. I still am interested in film, but not so much anime and manga anymore. Uh, but the idea of how even just historical figures are represented, kind of on that topic of representation is even on the topic of, of history books, you know, history books are written by the winners and, and such, but also this idea of, of casting a figure in a negative light or a positive light uh, can always be really interesting. Um, and so I became more curious about why is this character figure being chosen? And why is it is he, she being presented in this way? And then eventually as I grew up and grew up, I became more focused on women representation, not just in history necessarily or, or true figures but also fictional figures. 
did you have difficulty um, sourcing material to work on or was there so much that you had to kind of filter through and select what you felt you wanted to represent in your work? Uh, in, my, in my dissertation? Yeah, or... in your research, yeah. Um, hmm. yeah I'm just thinking right. because, you know, a lot of times we always say that women are so underrepresented and yet there's material out there, but how do we select the, 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 the type of work that we want to challenge or, or, or highlight as being problematic or, um, you know, pointing out what, you know, you wanted to point out to resist those things? Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, in the case of my research in, in this project, the, the spark for this particular project was my noticing how in J-horror, Japanese horror, a lot of the ghosts are female. The, the ring, Sadako with the ring, yeah, right. uh, Kayako from The Grudge, but not even just those two major uh, films uh, or film franchises, I should say because there are multiple films now. Um, but in general, uh, a lot of focus on the female. And then as I studied more about Japanese theater, I came to notice that the more popular works, the more popular ghost stories, the more popular plays, the ones that were considered more exciting were all featuring a female ghost and oftentimes an antagonistic female ghost. And so that kind of, is what I started to notice that when I first started my research. This actually started as a, a paper for um, a, uh, a research paper writing seminar that I took in my first semester of, of UH. Mm -hmm. And it kind of blew up from there uh, to become my dissertation project. But that's wow. when I started to notice that. That's really interesting. Um, and then, you know, you think about how like why, you know, why, why are we fascinated by the evil woman, the, the murderous woman, you know? Exactly, yeah. And it's not just the male audience who's fascinated by the female, you know, right? Um, it's it's everyone. Yeah. Do you think it's something to do with the female body um, being pro projecting larger issues that, that entice us or become the spectacle of, of life? In the case of film, a lot of uh, what's sort of tossed around is, is the concept of the male gaze, that a lot of film is predominantly cast through the male perspective, the male gaze, and the cameras effectively, the male eye perceiving what is being shown on screen. And so as an explanation for, say, how there's a lot of focus on the women's body, uh, often in the the way that a man might look at a woman and appreciate her body and not so much how maybe a woman's perspective might perceive a fellow female subject um, or a male subject for that matter. Uh, so the objectification through, uh, through film especially uh, of the body, I think is maybe a large purpose, but um, it's kind of different when it comes to horror because there is that element of the disgust or fear or, or those kinds of things that are a key element of horror. So that kind of gets a little tricky about the, the, uh, the purpose or the motivations behind it. Mm. Um, so 
one theory you could kind of say is is it's almost reassuring. Uh, there are some there are some theories about how uh, the way women are represented is to almost make men feel more secure is a theory that has been passed around sometimes about not being emasculated essentially. And so that could be a motivation. Uh, there is, I feel though, some concern about continuously casting women as, uh, especially in the horror genre anyways, uh, as this sort of negative force in some ways. I don't think it would necessarily encourage women to to try and and be quote unquote evil or or, yeah. or or monsters or things like that, but it will somehow affect how behavior uh, will will proceed. Mainly because these figures they often are they are cast in certain social roles. And oftentimes what happens to them is usually a consequence of that, of certain social behaviors. And so maybe not the actual ghost part of them, you know, cursing people or killing people probably aren't, um, people are probably believing in that so much, but the association of this is kind of what happens to these women who behave in this way. So it almost has a subliminal effect perhaps on the women of like, oh, well, I don't want to behave like that because that's how these women are being regarded. Yeah. In a way. And so that's a primary sort of, not agenda, but it's a real focus of kind of my argument for my dissertation of the potential problems behind uh, continuously using this trope. Uh, and, and, because it's technically a trip that came from earlier when, say, Neo-Confucianism was a large part of, say, Japanese society and such. And so it's still being kind of utilized in the same way that it was back then. Wow. So you're going like, back. Um, let's let's you know what we do. Let's take a quick break. There's a lot to uh, absorb what you just said there. And I love that you're problematizing these uh, these images of women associated with horror. So when we come back, let's talk a little bit about that, the historical kind of context to where this all kind of got influenced from. Ooh, juicy stuff. I'm back here. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Jennifer Yu, a PhD candidate in Asian theater at UH Manoa's Department of Theater and Dance. And we are talking about her very titillating title of a work called um, her presentation on Monstrous Wives, Murderous Lovers, and Dead Wet Girls, which is really an exploration of the representation of women in media and culture. So Jennifer, you were just talking about, before our break, um, about the historical context to how these images were formed. Do you want to kind of carry on with that? Sure, yeah. So the focus of my research and my presentation is not just on horror cinema, but also on this concept of the vengeful ghost in theater as well. And so I, in my research, I kind of start from theater from as early as the medieval period in Japan, uh, all the way through the more popular 
pre-modern period of the Edo period. So mostly focusing on the Kabuki theater in the Edo period and the No theater from, that comes more from the medieval period in Japan. And kind of looking at the, uh, this concept of a feminine vengeful spirit or ghost and how she is portrayed and a lot of the motivations behind why her story unfolds the way it does uh, in certain cases and what the motivations behind casting that story in that manner might be. Because even today, these stories are predominantly written by men. They aren't written by women. Uh, even in horror films in Japan, there's like only two female directors who do horror in the entire industry. Uh, and really only one that is, is recognized and hmm. gets significant work uh, produced by her. So and that today, said, horror yeah. films is a huge genre, in, right? It's a huge genre that often features female characters uh, in the form of the antagonist, in, in the ghost, or in the form of the main character, too. Mm -hmm. And so the motivations behind writing her story, but by a male hand, there's definitely something going on there that would be different if it were, say, a woman writer. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's a large part of what I look at. So, for example, like in no theater, probably in the medieval ages, uh, there's a heavy focus of the, conse the karmic consequences of Buddhism. Uh, that is a big focus in no and as Japan became more secular, especially their entertainment became slightly more secular, especially in the Kabuki theater era of the, of the Edo period, uh, which was uh, 17th century. I can do math. Yes, 17th <laughs> century, roughly. Um, it became less, less that of that focus. But at the time of the Edo period, there was a heavy focus on Neo-Confucianism. So a huge focus on uh fulfilling your duties and roles as a woman being you know very pious uh, filial piety was a huge uh, value stressed loyalty to your husband to to your uh to those figures in your life was a big element that was stressed and so you can see those trends in those respective theater forms and you can kind of see those trends also in horror but they're more socially focused a lot of them tend to be more focused on um, the breaking down of the nuclear family. So mm -hmm. uh, I don't think I actually get to talk about it too much in my actual presentation because we don't have a lot of time, but talking about the social roles of uh, the figures, how a lot of them are say single mothers and uh, or, or working or single working parents, that kind of thing, the idea of this happens almost because the family is not whole, that there's some stressing of the importance or value of the, the complete nuclear family. Maybe one of the motivations behind how the horror cinema stories are a little changing. The, so the same values are not being shared, but a lot of things are kept similar. And a lot of things are being borrowed from previous periods, but they're changing it a little bit each time. And, you know, it's interesting because we're talking about, uh, you know, hundreds of years of history is of influence of different embedded value systems that that 
kind of root us till today where things have not quite changed, <laughs> you know, it, you know, on the surface, you know, in this contemporary world and, and so-called room and space for equality, you know, the woman's position in many cultures is still so, so trapped in this structure. And it's interesting, you know, both mediums of theater and film have structures and and how do we break those structures or how do we challenge them by looking at how the woman is constructed in these spaces or how do we get, how do we break that? Like, you know, you're saying there are only two female directors in horror films in Japanese cinema. And, you know, if you look across many cultures, you know, it's desperately underrepresented. So how do we even move towards dis disrupting that old structure. You know what I'm saying? And, and I understand you're trying to problematize it, so. Yeah, so that is definitely, I, I, I'm, I'm aspiring to encourage people to really consider how um, media can have an effect on women viewers, as well as maybe the the aspirations of those of, of those creators too because one of the things that uh in the case of the topic of the female directors so one female director i was able to get some interviews with uh sort of copies of interviews to get a sense of her process is it's clear that she has a very specific perspective uh sorry her name is asato mari um she has a very particular perspective but you can tell in her later works that she seems to be adjusting her very original perspective that she started out with to adhere to the industry. So she's almost being almost directed or pressured maybe to, to adopt the male perspective story so much of, of portrayal. Whereas originally she had slightly more, uh, they were quite strikingly different works that seemed to not fit with a lot of what was being shown in the industry. Uh, and so I do think that that is a, a, a matter of concern because there are so few to make it, they often, like, they often mold themselves to fit the existing patterns rather than breaking those patterns. And so even if they do exist, they won't be, they won't maybe increase or they it may not be that different because they're just trying to continue what was what mm. was the precedent well because this whole awesome. kind of patriarchal foundation is so overpowering right you know it's heavily ingrained is within that box that we don't realize are kind of like what we're surviving off of so even those women who do make it they are given this opportunity because of that space that the patriarchy had allowed, which it sounds pretty sad. Um, but, you know, so, the, I, you know, I have like, I guess there are a couple of ways to look at it. You know, then we, we can highlight the, the women who do break those molds, who do offer to shift the lens with their um, perspective and, and hope to, you know, change perspective. But at the same time, it's like, do we have those token few? And then it makes us feel good about our society that we do have representation. Um, you know, is, it, is that good enough? 
Yeah, I mean, that kind of is a big element of just women's representation in general, that um, when there are few, in the case of characters and such, when there are few, we hyper-focus on how those few are represented. But if there are actually more, though, you're, there's nothing wrong with having, say, a weak, quote-unquote, very effeminate motherly figure in a story of any kind, as long as that's not the only representation of what women are supposed to be in that given narrative. So really increasing the types of representation should be the key is how I personally feel rather than hyper-focus on one form of representation and then just perpetuating that single form is expanding it. Um, this is not, as you mentioned before, uh, it's not unique to just one country, it's found all over. Uh, in the case of American entertainment, right? Um, I, I just remember uh, several years ago when the Mad Max movie, Fury Road mm -hmm. came out that starred Charlize Theron. Mm -hmm. People took issue with it because first of all, it wasn't about Mad Max, but secondly, um, there was some focus about how some of the women characters people didn't like, but the reaction to it was like, it's okay to not like all the women that are showing up, but there are a lot of different types of women in that film. So you have someone you can relate to, but, and there's only one woman, you know, the obligatory woman that they insert so, so they can check the box, right? Uh, then a lot of the importance is placed on how that single woman is represented. Whereas if you have a film or a story or a play that has multiple types of women, then that is really what's important is to make sure that representation is, is different figures, not focusing on like, oh, these values are not good. We don't wanna have those here. Is that women can have different values for sure, but as long as they're not all concentrated into one character or, uh, certain values are just completely ignored because as a result, then you, you focus on, oh, these are the values that are important because these are the ones that keep being perpetuated, such as the, the, the good mom or the yeah. good wife or any of those kinds of things. Like if you had both a good wife character and a bad wife character, then that's better uh, in those cases because sometimes people think that it's bad to cast women as villains but that's only because there's not a necessarily other women characters in it. Right, so right. that's kind of my focus too, is that um, the issue isn't so much that female ghosts are the focus, uh, or the focus is that they tend to be the most common and they don't get to behave in different ways in the different films that they're being utilized in. Not that there's necessarily a problem with having a female ghost character being an antagonizing force. It's just that the, the, the way that she's being used is like a trope. It's like a cookie cutter that's being used, which is kind of what the title comes from. Dead Wet Girls is actually a term that was coined by a film theorist named David Collat. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Um, to refer to the trend of J-horror where these ghosts that show up were 
girls, young women who were dead and wet. And so it, it, the idea was to, to give an easier title than say the ventral ghost or in using a Japanese term, which I use, which is the ondyo in my, uh, in my research. But the term dead wet girls also kind of reveals the, the potential change, dangers of just tropification. Mm -hmm. of the 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 uh, the character itself because there's a number of j horror films now where they don't really focus on maybe her story or her character itself it's just it's like is she dead check is she wet check is she a girl is she a girl good we're good we have a film and and that's it and so those are sort of elements too that i'm trying to focus on as well and, and the title is so visual and 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 graphic and and visceral um, maybe let's let's take one more break and when we come back, maybe you can offer some examples of these types of uh, tropes, if you will, or representation in in the films and theater that you explore so we can get a better sense of what it means to examine the monstrous wives and murderous lovers and dead wet girls in your research. So we'll come back with Jennifer. Welcome back. Wow, now we're getting into the nitty gritties. I'm talking to PhD candidate Jennifer Yu on monstrous wives, murderous lovers, and dead wet girls, uh, examining the feminine vengeful ghost in Japanese traditional theater and horror cinema. So Jennifer, you're about to share with us some specifics of your research and uh, yeah, the, the visual implications of the representation. So take it away. Sure, yes. Yeah. So as the title kind of implies, uh, not only is there a feminine vengeful ghost, but there's almost like sub roles within the feminine vengeful ghost because it was kind of impossible to look at all possible examples. But I did notice predominantly these three sub roles, the, the monster's wife, the murderous lover, and the dead wet girl. The dead wet girl, uh, as we mentioned earlier, is more of a reference to how she is portrayed in modern contemporary uh, works. Um, but I did look at a lot of how narratively uh, they, she's portrayed, but also visually. And so a lot of visual elements are actually what have persisted through the years, through time, even from as early as the medieval period with the no theater. So as an example of an element of visual portrayal that uh, becomes a major part of, even in film, is this idea, for example, of transformation, mm -hmm. uh, which persists even today. In the no theater form, uh, the medieval form, this form of transformation often manifested in like an, almost like a demonic association, which is why in these um, pictures, if you're watching visually, you can kind of see these horns emerging and such. And so those are the elements that I talk about, but the element of transformation is something that is kind of found throughout. This here is also a picture example of what I would term the murderous lover. It's kind of out of order of monster's wife, murderous lover. Um, character because uh, during this time period there was a lot of focus on the woman being very motivated by passions and jealousy and those were often what caused her to change into a vengeful spirit uh transform so to speak of course right. <laughs> and that trope's been used <laughs> forever lots in hong kong chinese cinema it's like it's so similar 
Yeah. Sure, sure, definitely. Uh, one thing that's interesting, though, is the an idea of transformation visually can take different forms. In the case of, I mentioned earlier, talking about the Kabuki theater, mm. which comes from more of the Edo period, the, the 17th century time period. Uh, this transformation is taken more uh, physically and literally rather than figuratively in the form of some form of, say, physical disfigurement often incurred through violence. And this is actually the form that is more often seen in film also. Portrayed here, we have some examples from, uh, from Kabuki because uh, a lot of the physical disfigurement, the focus is oftentimes on the woman's face, uh, marring of her face, essentially robbing her of her femininity. Uh, pictured here is an example of what I would call the monstrous wife uh, trope, so to speak, or sub role, I should really say. Can you just describe uh, that for people who aren't, don't have access to uh, uh, visuals who are listening on radio? There is a picture of this, uh, the kabuki. Is it kabuki, this one? It's kabuki, yes. Okay. So, so what we have pictured here are uh, this woman here on, on the right, and she her face has been partially distorted. It's been essentially marred, kind of melted off with poison. And that's what's been pictured. And so that idea of physical disfigurement uh, in the form of poison and is also violence to her person because she's been poisoned and she was poisoned by extension by her husband. So hence the monstrous wife element in that case. Um, so in the case of no, that the, the sort of demonic horn focus of the imagery is more common visually. In the case of kabuki, it's more often uh, more literal physical, like violence or um, actual scarring or, or that some kind of shown of an injury of some sort to the person. And so those are some examples of things I talk about for these two respective sub roles. But I mentioned uh, earlier how the dead wet girls is something that was more uh, more modern. It, this is officially a term that was used for uh, but was coined by David Collat to refer to the slightly different type of feminine and vengeful ghosts that showed up because these were examples of more traditional or what I call the classic female onryo, the Japanese term for vengeful ghost. Whereas the new female onryo that tends to show up in contemporary films is slightly different in representation. And that's sort of encapsulated in that term, dead wet girls, because the focus is oftentimes on, on the element of wetness for lack of a better word um well there's definitely history. let's talk about the wetness i yeah. mean there's something very sexual about wetness mm -hmm. obviously but there's also something about you know being drenched being kind of just flooded or drowned by something right it's it's something that's very visual certainly certainly and and sometimes it's taken literally like as in just water and sometimes it's taken in the form of blood as as you kind if people are watching they can see in the uh, in one of these pictures that there are characters that are drenched in just regular water, but then there's some that are more bedraggled with blood. And so that idea of not just water necessarily, but, uh, but wet through other, say, bodily fluids, this is also in reference to, um, you could even say into how uh, the woman ends up giving birth in water, life is, life is produced through the womb, which is essentially some, uh, 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 a life in, um, enclosed in 
liquid in, in of some kind. But and this so is those- a violent, a violent interpretation of that fluid that normally is something that's treasured and valued for women. Exactly. Right? So can exactly. we like read into that violence of kind of the fear of fluids? so to speak. There is a huge fear of fluids, especially um, like essentially uh, a creating horror in what should be normal, uh, really. I mean, we we avoid talking about bodily functions for yeah. similar reasons, right? Um, and so the idea of, say, pregnancy or birth is something that's considered uh, something that we don't talk about openly and with all the details we use euphemisms a lot of times for a lot of things and so and essentially what, you know, we're talking about menstruation today is the full moon you know we're right, talking about yeah. like a woman's cycle and this all these fluids that surround us you know sure sure but essentially what that is doing is uh what what, what we could say where it's objectifying it uh, objectifying as in it's rendering it something to be considered with some kind of a horror uh, some kind of a disgust or, or horror or, or, or wanting, wanting someone to sort of reject it. So objectifying, not objectifying um, in that sense. And so that is sort of the the premise of the dead white girls, because not, it's not just normal water, even when it is water, it's often water that is infected somehow with death. Mm. some kind so it's often usually dirty or 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 putrid or something like that too it's not usually just normal water so that's also an example of mm, creating this horrific image associated with something that should be normal quote unquote uh and that is also a potential problem of of representation too because it's not the only example of this uh, oftentimes the dead wet girl has really long hair that's bedraggled and everything and so the focus on the hair is also hmm. where we suddenly have this kind of like oh where we just see a clump of hair in a horror hmm. film now and then we we react but it may not even be attached to somebody's head so now we're just thinking about how hair itself is is horrific right um so those are some examples of visual elements that have continued um to today well i can't stop looking and i'm it's one of those things with horror films you put your eye you know you cover your face you don't want to see it but then you open up your fingers to look because you're fascinated (laughs) something draws you to the horror right what is it with human nature that we we are you know simultaneously compelled and resisting something you know there's a sort of a morbid curiosity that's going on where where you can't look away and sometimes it, it almost feels like that, that that feeling is almost being taken advantage that you're being taken advantage of because you have that feeling of you can't resist looking. Yeah. Um, but then sometimes you regret it and then it haunts your exactly. dreams after. Um, but then it has that impact because you still remember it even after the a lingering well image is haunting, very haunting. Yeah. I don't want to look at this girl anymore. But can you just maybe briefly go through those images that you have on your screen sure, and what films sure. they're from and what is context it is? Yes, so um, what we have here are some examples of some rather key examples of what could be called a dead white girl, mainly because they're using water in different ways. Um, uh, we have a picture here uh, from Bingu, also known as the ring in yes. English, because um, in in the in Bingu, uh, the ghost figure kind of came to be because she was 
killed and drowned in a well. And so that's a spoiler, I guess, uh, for some people who watch the movie. Yeah, but um, what is she holding on to? I can't tell. Uh, so, so the hero when Reiko is trying to break Sadako's curse from the ring by trying to find Sadako's body. So she is actually holding Sadako's corpse okay. in this picture, uh, and, and such. So um, there's also that kind of element of almost like associating things with motherhood because she in this picture, if people were watching, she's sort of cradling this broaded skeleton yeah. body as if she's right. just a regular girl regular child yeah. and Deiko in the film is a mom okay. too so it's also like on the topic of how liquid wetness is, is a big element of women it's not even just extended to the actual dead wet girl it's almost even brought in with other women figures that show up um, we also have an example of water being used more in the folkloric and religious senses, where water is often used as like a conduit for the, the afterlife. And so there's a image from the film known as Shikoku. I don't think it was actually released in English. Shikoku means like the, the land of the dead is the mm -hmm. name of the, as a film. But in this one, this mom figure is actually bringing back her daughter who died from, from the dead using water. Mm. So that's another example of use of water. And so as a result, she sort of emerges as a dead girl because of this. And then there are examples of using water as like a weapon too, like where expression of power is through water, which is a great example comes from the Japanese film, Honogurai Mizu, no Sokokara, which is translated to dark water. Dark water was also made into a, an American film, which is probably more recognizable to some people, but the character in that sort of attacks characters through water. So it's sort of fascinating because her figure doesn't usually show up. Her intent is expressed through water and we don't actually get to see her physically in a lot of cases. Um, so in a way it's, it's manifested through the, the element of water. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, and, but again, it's not just regular water. It's still dirty water because yeah. as, as is revealed in the movie, the girl that uh, is um, attacking people through water, uh, she's a, the ghost of a girl who drowned in the water tank for the apartment. Mm. And so, uh, so her death kind of infected the water of the entire complex oh, as wow. a result. So, so that's sort of still that idea of, of, not clean water, just like in the ring where the well water is not clean because Sadako died in it. Um, and the last example we have here comes from Juon or The Grudge. Uh, I think The Grudge and The Ring are probably the most recognizable horror films for a lot of people when it comes to Japanese horror. Oh. And in that film is uh, Kayako is the main sort of feminine vengeful ghost that shows up in that one. And visually, she often shows up uh, rather distorted and contorted because uh, she was violently killed, brutalized by her husband who suspected her of infidelity mm. in the film. And uh, so she often shows up rather bloodied. So her wetness has more to do with that. But she, she, Kayako is also a mom in, in, the, in the film. So there's also this element of motherhood, mm. which is a part of it sometimes. Um, 
So the concept of dead wet girl doesn't always fit because some of these figures are maybe not what we would call girls, but it is sort of a, a catch-all term for a trend of making the vengeful ghost woman character younger in a lot of horror films. It's a, there's obviously ex exceptions. There's exceptions to almost every, uh, every generalization in that sense, but a lot of things still kind of hold true. Yeah. Especially because um, in the case of The Ring and the Grudge franchises, too, is they may have started with slightly older women figures, but they actually got younger. So later on the, in the Juon Grudge franchise, um, Kayako finds a way to rebirth herself as a little girl. Yeah. So the so the idea of the girl element does kind of come into play still. Even and also the, the idea girl. of, you know, that that the desire for youth, both mm -hmm. on the women's side and for the, the male gaze and looking at something that's youthful, sure. beautiful and, and sexualized, right? Sure. There's always that that we always look at. This is yeah. so fascinating. Um, and this is just a teaser of what is about to come because I understand you're having a presentation this coming Friday. Uh, do you want to share about that? Because and how do people, um, how can they join this presentation to learn more about your work? Sure, sure. Yes. So this I am scheduled to give a presentation for the Center of Japanese Studies for their seminar series uh, this uh, term. Uh, it's scheduled for Friday, uh, yes. September 24th. This this Friday, one o'clock. Right. Exactly. So uh, to you do it is going to be on Zoom because as as uh, Crystal, you mentioned earlier, I'm coming in from the East Coast, so I'm going to be doing it virtually remotely. I do believe you have to register uh, to be a, a, a given sort of access to the link. Um, the registration link should be in the flyer uh, that was distributed by the Center of Japanese Studies. I don't know if the flyer will be I'll post the flyer uh, on our K2H Facebook page, but I think it's also accessible. Is it in at the Cult Center for Japanese Studies? They would have access to it? Uh, they, they should have something posted as for information about yeah. it. Sure, yes. Um, I am also told that uh, later on, the presentation will be uh, viewable on the YouTube channel for the Center okay. of Japanese Studies. So right. for those who say can't make it to the right. time and are still interested, they should be able to access that through there. Um, but yeah, so uh, we'll be talking great. about a lot of this uh, and a little more, hopefully, with the fascinating, time. Fascinating, fascinating. What do you ultimately wanna, do you wanna do something with this further or um, like what is your ultimate work-related goal right now? Uh, my work-related goal right now is to finish it so I can get my PhD. Okay. <laughs> but, um, um, but yeah, I mean, I would I would love to be able to to adapt some of this into some kind of a book of some sort. Um, I, I initially started this project, and then one of the reasons why I got. Uh, accepted to the Crown Prince Akihito Scholarship to go on my field research in 2017 was my, uh, I expressed how I felt that encouraging looking at media representation in another country makes it slightly easier to uh, think about just how representation happens rather, rather than getting defensive. And so uh, by looking at another culture's use of representation through uh, of women through media, you can kind of 
start to think about how representation goes on in your own respective country's media. Um, but oftentimes if you yourself are of that country, it can be hard to sort of look at it because you start getting defensive about like, oh, well, that's not quite right. Or not all, not all of this is the same, that kind of thing, rather than really thinking about mm. it from a sort of outside objective point of view. Right. And so uh, one of the things I expressed is that I would like for ultimately a way to sort of help direct people's attention to say how cultural representation is going on in the U.S. Uh, media. Yeah, oh, that's brilliant. In, yeah. In the and case it, of horror, we, we make a lot of Japanese horror films. And so we are kind of, without maybe realizing it, taking these tropes, these things like the dead wet girls and everything and remaking them even without the precedent of history and culture in our own country. So yeah, yeah. no, historical context is everything. So I really appreciate your research and good luck. Uh, we look forward to the completion of your doctorate. Uh, this Thank is you. Jennifer Yu, PhD candidate in Asian theater with this fascinating uh, research on monstrous wives, murderous lovers, and dead wet girls. Go see her presentation this Friday. Thank you so much. Thank you.